This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. On this week's episode, the U.S. Supreme Court handed down a ruling Monday that their decision last year ruling split jury verdicts unconstitutional cannot be applied retroactively for inmates who have exhausted all their appeals. Orleans Parish School Board officials asked the board for permission to use a special district student fund next school year to help cover some programs which were previously funded by Harris Casino money. Those funds may not be coming to the schools next year. And a city program that has served meals to more than 10,000 people during the pandemic may be nearing its end. Those stories, insight, and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. On the podcast this week, criminal justice reporter Nick Crastel. Hey, Nick. Morning, Carolyn. Education reporter Marta Jusen's here. Hey, Marta. Hey, Carolyn. Health reporter Philip Kiefer is here. Hi, Philip. Hey, good morning. And Lens editor Charles Maldonado also. Hey, Charles. Morning. So, Nick, coming up first in criminal justice, we had all been waiting for the Supreme Court ruling, which they actually did pretty early. It ruled that the non-unanimous jury decision that they had previously ruled on does not apply retroactively to inmates who are serving time who have exhausted their appeals. Can you tell us what what they said? Yeah, so so as you said, the the Supreme Court ruled six to three that their previous ruling that the non-unanimous jury verdicts were unconstitutional uh, should not apply retroactively. What they said, the, the sort of Case determining case laws, they, they needed to decide whether or not the unconstitutionality of non-unanimous jury verdicts was a a new uh, procedural rule in criminal trials, which they ruled that it was, um, and then they needed to decide whether or not it was a watershed rule, and that that sort of was the determinative factor um, whether or not it would be applied retroactively. And the majority uh, ruled that, that it was not a watershed rule, and, and they also determined that, in fact, uh, no, no such uh, watershed rule could ever exist. So the, this was a, a sort of um, an overturning of, of precedent. In, in, in their dissent, uh, uh, Justice Elena Kagan argued that, in fact, that this was, this was the definition of a watershed rule, that, that if, if there was ever going to be such a thing, this was, this was in fact it, and that the, the majority was, by, by saying there never could be, they were, they were trying to just avoid the fact that it, that it so clearly was. So that, that was the, the sort of legal, legal questions being addressed, you know, more kind of practically, uh, Justice Kavanaugh, Brett Kavanaugh, who wrote the majority opinion, said, said basically, you know, the, the sort of logistical and practical challenge of, of trying all these cases over again, many of which are decades old, you know, would create sort of a, a too much of a burden for the state, for, for victims, for the criminal justice system to sort of go back and and try and try and uh, do these cases again. Now that they've completed their, their appeals, you know, a lot of people have argued that that is exactly what they need to do, regardless of sort of the, the, the the difficulties of it. So, um, how many people does this affect? So, in Louisiana, the estimate is is around fifteen hundred. I think between fifteen and sixteen hundred people who are, and these are people who are still in prison on uh, non-unanimous jury verdicts. So, I, and I think we've mentioned in the show before, uh, there's also you know 
a whole range of people that, that we haven't been talking about who, who are likely still on parole or who have these these uh, convictions, you know, who are not in prison but have these convictions still sort of lingering and uh, affecting their, their lives. But those are really the focus has been on uh, the people who are still in prison and, and, and like I said, there's about 1,500 of them. And what happens next with those folks that are in prison still? They have a couple of avenues of possibility. Yeah, so I mean, I think the, the, the greatest chance for them um, and sort of what all eyes are on now is there is a bill filed at the state legislature that would basically do um, what, what the Supreme Court failed to do, and it would give these people uh, either, either a new trial or it would give them a shot at parole. Um, my understanding is that they would sort of have, have a choice which avenue to take, um, but they would have some, some mechanism for challenging their conviction. So I think what it would look like uh, it would be would be sort of something similar to what's actually happening happening in New Orleans, where the district attorney has um, decided to go ahead and 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 vacate uh, all non-unanimous jury convictions that came out of Orleans Parish. Um, the way he's doing it is is sort of going through court section by court section, reviewing all the the uh, post-conviction applications that that have a non-unanimous jury claim and he's vacating them and then and then what he's been doing primarily is is negotiating plea deals with those with those individuals um most of them are taking taking lesser charges uh many of them um are are in fact getting out of prison and he's been been making an effort to to reach out to victims uh of of those you know crimes although there's been some controversy around that um as well so so i think that like, like I said, if the bill passed, you'd probably see some version of that ha- happening. So they have a couple of, or a, a few different ways to, to continue to pursue this. What they don't have anymore is uh, is the federal courts. But, you know, as you mentioned, there's the, the legislative route and there's a bill moving, moving through the legislature and we're not sure how that's going to turn out. There's also individual prosecutors in parishes like Jason Williams is doing can choose to do this and they have, you know, pretty broad discretion. Um, and then finally, there's the state Supreme Court. And we know that that at least a thousand of these people, these prisoners have uh, have entered petitions into this into the state Supreme Court, right? Yeah, I mean, the way the petitions work is they, they actually enter them into their, you know, into the district courts. Oh, right? they enter them. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And, but but ultimately, the Supreme Court will, will be deciding on this. Um, you know, I think that they could have they could have already decided on it. Um, and they had a case in front of them that they, they chose that chose not to take. The uh, former chief justice at the time argued that they should and that they should just go ahead and sort of jump out ahead of the, the United States Supreme Court and go ahead and make 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 the decision to to apply it retroactively um they did not but i think likely they'll they'll be addressing it again a little more head-on um you know in the in the coming months or year okay and another story you've been following nick what's the update on mr sneed bobby sneed you'll remember mr sneed was a prisoner at angola who was was granted parole and then it had it subsequently uh, rescinded after the prison alleged that he had an overdose. Um, although he was then acquitted on those disciplinary charges, the parole board went ahead and, and, and rescinded his parole. Anyway, he's a 74-year-old 
uh, man, he's been incarcerated for, for 47 years. So the, the update with Mr. Sneed is, is that his attorney has filed a, a lawsuit against the parole board and against the executive director of the board on pardon and committee on parole. He filed a lawsuit basically alleging that the decision to rescind uh, Mr. Sneed's parole was was illegal um, on, on several fronts. He argued that, that in fact, he argued that, that the parole board, in fact, does not have authority to, to rescind parole at all um, under state law. They can they can only revoke it. And then he argued that the, the procedures that were followed to, to to rescind or revoke Mr. Sneed's parole were were not legal, um, that he didn't have proper uh, due process, that the decisions were made behind closed doors in secret, which which uh, he argues violates state law. And, and then he, argued, he also argued that there was good evidence that what the parole board did was retaliatory for uh, Mr. Sneed uh, and and his his lawyer um, sort of advocating for his release and, and specifically for speaking to the press. So that's that's the update. The the lawsuit was filed late last week. There hasn't been any any movement on it yet, but we'll be following that. Okay. Yeah, it's. It's, it's an interesting case for a couple different reasons as you read through it. I mean, one is that Mr. Sneed's attorney makes this argument that the parole board doesn't have the, the power to rescind. In this case, rescission would be pulling back somebody's parole while they're still in custody, which is, which is what they did before they later denied him parole. Although even that is a little fuzzy because of uh, some you know, procedural, un- unusual procedures that they took in this case. And if, if you read statutory law that's right he uh, he's right there's there's nothing about parole rescission in there um however in the administrative code which is the state equivalent to like federal regulations which have the force of law uh it does give the power uh, it, it does give the parole board uh power of rescission so it's unclear if that argument is going to go through but there's a you know there's a no- number of other arguments uh that the attorney is making that you know show that you know that he wasn't he wasn't he wasn't allowed to present evidence um which he would be in the case if it were a parole revocation rather than than a, a you know a parole denial or parole rescission and another interesting part about it is that um uh, the lawyer says that these decisions by the parole board were in fact motivated by you know, vindictiveness because Mr. Sneed had taken his case to the press. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it, it mentions that the executive director of the parole board spoke um, derisively of the, uh, of, of the press coverage, um, you know, in his conversations with Mrs., Mr. Sneed's lawyer and, you know, seemed to be quite angry about it. Okay. Thanks for the update there. Yeah, thank you. You're listening to Behind the Lens. I'm Carolyn Heldman. My guests this week are criminal justice reporter Nick Crastle, education reporter Marta Jusen, and health reporter Philip Kiefer, along with Lens editor Charles Maldonado. Hi, I'm Michael Isaac Stein, and I cover New Orleans cultural economy and local government here at The Lens. When you listen to this podcast or read a story at our website, You join in on the process of examining life and culture in a way that makes us all better citizens and better people. With more and more noise and information coming at us every day, it's important to have a place you can rely on for truth and balance. If you can, please make a tax-deductible donation to support our work at our website, thelensnola.org slash donate. And thank you.
Marta in education. For years, several Orleans Parish School Board programs were paid for with city dollars that uh, generated from Harris Casino money. That money is threatened now. What's the background here? Yeah, so for, for a really long time, uh, the city had a contract with the Harris Casino, and there's a, a special fund that came through revenue generated through that contract that was to be directed directly to the Orleans Parish School Board. And in a new contract signed in 2020, uh, it's only to be directed to like a general, quote, educational purpose. So it can go, it could be going to any number of nonprofits or different types of educational services in the city. It's no longer guaranteed for the Orleans Parish School Board. Just a little background on that. Um, so Harris years ago was, was you know, it, 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 it sort of was given uh, special treatment isn't the exact right word, but it was given special consideration um, to operate the only land-based full casino um, in the state. You know, we have full casinos in the state that are, you know, that were uh, sort of water-based. They were on like river boats, a lot of which have been, you know, permanently attached to docks. And then there are half casinos that operate on land that, you know, like that only have slot machines and off-track betting. But Harris was a fully-fledged casino. Um, and it was the only one that was allowed to operate in the state through a special deal. And then another part of the deal was that it was going to it was going to lease uh, a, a piece of city-owned land. So that land downtown where, where Harris is is owned by the city. So it has so it leases it, and as part of that lease, this the you know the city put in special provisions that it was going to it was going to donate or give part part of its proceedings every year for the Harris Fund, and a certain percentage of the Harris Fund went to uh you know goes to nonprofits and stuff around the city and then and then a larger chunk of it for years went to opsb and then last year they renegotiated this deal and instead of saying that it specifically goes to opsb uh it said that it had to be used for for education which means it could be used for you know for example early childhood education which is what the city council seems to be most interested in right um and early childhood education largely is not run by OPSB schools. It's run by, you know, private nonprofits. And Marta, what, what programs were funded by this money? Yeah, so they kind of came up, uh, in the past, they'd come up with a kind of an overall umbrella of what types of, what does the city council want to be supporting? And they want to be supporting programming for, you know, that could affect all students. We have a mostly all charter network. I don't think they wanted to give it to individual schools. So they were supporting things um, like the school at the jail, um, you know, the truancy center, attendance center, and also, um, you know, a special uh, program for students with um, who have extreme behavioral needs who, you know, the best place for them to be is not in their classroom at this point in time, but to go to a special uh, school with like very good one-on-one -on -one attention. And then when they're um, better in a better place, they can go back to their home school. Okay. So kind of this overall umbrella of serving youth who might need help in a different way um, through the school system. But one of the talking points we heard at the city council meeting where council members were talking about shifting this money towards early education was kind of this tone of, well, all these, these programs that we're running when the kids are getting older are, we're just fixing these issues. Maybe we could fix these issues on the front end, which, you know, we, we know that a lot of 
investment in early childhood education is very important. Uh, but, you know, public speakers were also like, we still have a whole 10, 15 years of kids out there. So that kind of ignores them. Uh, they didn't get a lot of time to pivot about this funding or this lack of funding. What are they planning on doing? Yeah, so the, what was interesting about this is this was kind of a, the, the district had banked on receiving this money when they made their budget last year, and they had budgeted into this current budget year, which we only have um, a month or six weeks left of. And so it, it took that long for them to finally get it from the city council in April. Mm. So the, what the district has decided to do is um, shift their, they have, they're going to pull money from a special fund, which they're allowed to use for things like specialized programming. So they can kind of fit it under this umbrella, um, but they're really going to draw down that account um, that was uh, created in 2019 through legislation to provide for what they call system-wide needs. So, you know, similar programming issues. Um, but it, it, it did kind of look like a stopgap when they presented it at a board committee meeting this week. Okay. Basically, they, they generate more money every year in the system-wide needs fund. You know, it's based on allocating a certain number of dollars per student and, you know, setting it aside in a special fund. And they're generating more from those allocations than they've been spending so what they're saying now is we're just going to use that fund balance, that unspent fund balance, to fund some of these priorities that we, we are concerned will not, will not be funded by Harris going forward. Right, because at that April meeting, City Council did pretty much tell them, oh, you had budgeted this, but we hadn't given it to you yet. You know, next year you're going to want to probably have written this into your own budget it, in so many words. They're, they're fairly blunt. Uh, and what about special education? There's something came up at the meeting. Yeah, so in that system-wide needs fund, they're allowed to use that for um, two things. They have to pick pr priorities, and they reset them every three years. And the first two were um, teacher talent, you know, so they're you know developing partnerships with schools, trying to make sure student teachers are getting into schools. And then separately, they're allowed to um, fund specialized programming. So that's how they were able to fit, um, you know, the Travis Hill School and the 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 specialized school for behavior into this um, funding for this, this stopgap that they're doing. But on top of that, they were also uh, announced that they were going to give $600,000 to this other special fund, which is a, a totally separate thing. But when uh, school leaders saw that number, $600,000 to go towards this um, fund called the Citywide Exceptional Needs Fund, which gives individual grants to students with disabilities, um, because they can have really high cost services, right? It can cost $40,000, $50,000 for one student, you know, if they require a paraprofessional to be with them all day. So when school leaders saw this $600,000 figure, I, I think they were pretty worried that that represented, uh, you know, almost half of what it normally goes into that fund. So it kind of brought up this whole different uh, discussion and what the advocates were excited to hear was that the district was like, no, 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 we're, we're not taking any money out of that exceptional needs fund, but we don't know how much we're gonna fund it at yet. So I, I, I think there is still a little bit of uh, concern from the special education community and all schools in general as they try to access this money. Mm. Yeah, through no fault of MARTA's, um, this this was a kind of a, a confusing part of it because what it, so I viewed the presentation and I was confused by it as well. But what it seems to be, and I could end up being completely wrong about this, is that the $600,000 represents an additional allocation 
to this other special education fund rather than what they're proposing as the entire fund's budget for next year. But we won't know if that's right until they draw a budget for that other fund. Are they planning on 21-22 being completely back to normal or how are they planning for this school year? Well-wise or funding-wise? Funding. So funding, we're gonna see a little bit of a dip, but what's interesting is that um, student per pupil funding from state uh, money is based on kind of a two years out scenario. Mm -hmm. So it's gonna catch up on the local level first and we'll see a hit there, but then uh, two years out from now, they're saying that 2022, 23 is gonna, potentially be the biggest year with the financial hit for schools. Mm, okay. Although, well, are they getting any money out of the rescue plan or how, how much money out of the rescue plan are they getting? They have gotten money out of the rescue plan. Um, I don't know off the top of my head, it's different. Every charter gets a different amount of money. Are they going to be phasing that in over a couple of years, the way the city is talking about doing in order to make up for, you know, sort of lost revenues as the, as the economy recovers? You know, I haven't asked them that question yet. Uh, I know, I know they all, uh, most a charter entity has got that emergency money um, in the fall. And then, yes, they are getting money out of the second pot as well. Okay. And we're closing in on the end of the school year. What's happening with COVID now? All right. So we saw a little bit of a tick up in COVID cases, um, which generally isn't too concerning. But what was interesting is that the majority of those cases were newly reported in the last week. So I think we're all being a little more social. Um, we also know variants are out there that we don't know if they're how many of them are here or specifically in parish. But we also saw quarantines double to 500 people who were not allowed to be in school buildings this week. So definitely keep an eye on that. Marta, correct me if I'm wrong, but my, my impression has been that the school board, you know, the, the school district has, you know, has said that they're aware of the variants and they're kind of looking into it, but we haven't seen a whole lot of action or a whole lot of, you know, many public statements about it. It, it, it almost, it almost seems like, well, we're getting we're getting close to the end of the school year. If we can just coast through these next two weeks, and then we'll have many fewer kids in schools for summer school. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, it's exactly that. Their their goal, obviously, is to kind of make it out here, eke it out. You know, they've they've done a pretty decent job keeping these cases low all year. But um, I, I do have questions about the variants. I've asked them that several times. Um, I haven't asked in the last week, though. But Every other time I've asked, they just say, well, we're not aware of any. And so, um, you know, I don't know if they would tell. I don't know if they would be aware if, you know, the Department of Health would tell them. It's it's also interesting to me that this, this important window that they get, uh, public health officials get this window or this look at, at cases via schools reporting, and now suddenly that is going to be gone in a week or two weeks. I, I wonder how they, I mean, they'll have to count on just normal reporting of, of people who are going to the doctor or something. You know, it's like a, I guess what I'm trying yeah, to say I, is. I think that's a better mechanism, right, for overall stuff. But certainly the self-reporting of schools was a uh, fascinating way to watch and track this. Um, Charles mentioned the other day, he, you know, he's, are we going to see reporting from like school sports or from, you know, Nord or anything like that? Um, so that's something that we're looking into and obviously would hope that we would see too. There's going to be reporting through summer school. I, I believe, if I remember correctly, that some schools were doing kind of extended summer school this year. Yeah, there's going to be a lot of extended summer school. I, I do not know if they're going to continue reporting. Um, my hope would be yes, because 
there's that's still going to be kids in buildings and it's not a un, unsimilar scenario to what we have right now but uh, right I, I don't have an answer from the district on that yet philip why don't you weigh in on this yeah and it's i'm realizing that this should have occurred to me earlier but when i last this was probably three weeks ago um but last asked uh city health director dr jennifer Avegno about the levels of overall testing in the city and whether or not she was concerned about whether there's enough surveillance happening of covid in the city um one of the things she pointed to was that there is this surveillance testing happening in the schools right now and that that gives us a window into community transmission all across the city and so realizing yeah that's a a tool that the city has been (laughs) relying on um and obviously the other one is Tulane um which will have the same thing happen I'm more skeptical that Tulane is a good window into citywide dynamics but um (laughs) right obviously the the school district is you know casts a wide net across the city and kids up until the spread of the variants what we were hearing was kids were basically an indicator of transmission at home so yeah we could be losing two really big sites for surveillance testing yep yep okay thanks Marta Thank you. So moving on with you, Philip, can you explain what the COVID-19 meal assistance program was and what's happening with it now? Yeah, so the meal assistance program is one of these disaster response um, things that popped up relatively early in the pandemic. Um, It was started in July of last year. It's a cost share between FEMA and the city. Um, FEMA puts 75% of the bill, city takes 25%. Um, And it provides two meals a day to recipients um, through this restaurant program. So the city pays local restaurateurs purportedly to make meals and then delivers to a day to people who are on the program. So it's described by the city as a sort of win-win for supporting the restaurant industry and people who um, would otherwise be facing food insecurity. And like a lot of these disaster relief programs during COVID, it's sort of um, playing a dual role of supporting people who don't have access to food for financial reasons, right? Obviously the pandemic has cut deeply into um, people's ability to just buy food, but also people who might not have been able to go to the grocery store or restaurants or wherever because of pre-existing health conditions, because they're over 65. So it's both pitched as Uh, sort of a general purpose food insecurity relief plan, but also a public health um, measure. And so its status right now is we know that it's funded through May 30th, um, but it's been renewed on a month to month basis this entire time. So it started last July and for the past 11 months, FEMA has only informed the city whether it will be renewed on the fifth of the month. So the city flies blind for five days. Mm. Um, 
every month and then FEMA comes in and says, okay, we're renewing it for another month. The city as of Tuesday said that it was seeking a renewal for the month of June, but that is at FEMA's discretion and they're good reasons to suspect that um, they may not renew it this time. So we're either two weeks from it ending or potentially six weeks from it ending. As with a lot of these FEMA programs, what the city has said is the impetus or the, the justification was around this public health emergency. Vaccines are becoming more widespread. Um, enrollment in the program has tailed off. It was it peaked somewhere between 11 and 12,000 over the summer um, in the fall and then is down to around 4,000 now. And so the city is saying that FEMA may no longer think that the program is justified. But but just just to be clear, the city is basically saying, you know, the city is basically saying we're 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 sending in the new application. It may or may not get approved, so prepare for that one. But even if we are approved for June, we're not sure if we're going to even if the program, you know, even if FEMA perhaps is willing to continue past June, we're not entirely sure that we are going to continue to seek these reimbursements past June. That's right. Yeah. And I asked about a July extension. I said it was too soon to know, but in a press release that they sent out yesterday after our story went live, um, they also confirmed that it's probably ending soon. So I think it's reasonable to guess that June is probably the last month, even if it is renewed. Just to, to remind everybody in terms of, you know, the justification being for this you know, as it was in, in lifting the mask mandate, that, um, you know, that things have, have significantly improved. Um, you know, so when it comes to vaccinations, you know, the city is doing, is doing pretty well. We're, we're at a majority of the eligible population. Uh, 51% now completed vaccinations, or, you know, completed both, both shots, and 56% have initiated vac- vaccinations of the eligible population. The other side of that is that the eligible population is not everyone. There's a substantial chunk of people who are not yet eligible. So that means we are still below a majority of the overall citywide population um, who have either initiated or completed a vaccination. Not to mention the people that flood the streets now, that it, it seems relatively normal when you walk around outside in Orleans Parish anyway, as far as tourist visits and activity. But, right, and that's impossible to track. Right, and so. meanwhile, I think unemployment still is really high, right? Yeah, exactly. It's still, I, I think the most recent number that I've seen was for March, and it was 11%. Someone might have a more recent number than that. But the comparison I saw was that March 2021, it was 11%. March 2020, it was 5%. So we're still double what we were a year ago. Okay, so advocates are still suggesting that that there is a need for this program? Yeah, I mean, you know, everyone who looks at food security in the city is saying the same thing. You know, the economic fallout from this pandemic is still going on and people don't have work and expanded unemployment benefits could be ending soon. Um, And so there is a lot of need. Um, And this is actually something that um, 
that advocates told me a long time ago that in in January we had a story people were basically saying you know we don't know if there is a runway for this program and we really need to um, figure out how to shift people onto SNAP the federal you know the long term federal nutrition assistance program which is also called food stamps um, and. I mean, what we're watching now is basically that come to pass that we may, um, some of this need might be taken on by food banks, although they have been hard pressed this whole pandemic. Mm -hmm. Um, Some people are going to hopefully enroll in SNAP. I mean, what um, someone with Second Harvest told me is that this city program has been really effective in part because it was a delivery. It was bringing food to people who weren't proactively going to a food bank or something and anyone who was on the program because of the way it was structured federally was by definition not on snap not on meals on wheels not on WIC benefits um they couldn't be and so this program likely reached a lot of people who are eligible for federal benefits but were not previously on it and so then i think the question becomes can the city make sure that it uses these relationships it's built up and i you know i want to say all of the advocates who i'm talking to are praising this program for reaching these people and for providing really critical support at the height of this crisis but then the question becomes is it going to be able to make sure that people are shuttled into longer term support now that all of these emergency programs conclude for anybody listening who is concerned about this program ending or is concerned about um you know a family member who 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 could use these sorts of benefits i would encourage you to go to the lens and read philip's article he's got some links and phone numbers at the bottom of the story for people who uh who who want to check if they may be eligible for snap benefits yeah and for now the city is saying call 211 um i I haven't been able to reach the service provider who's doing this for more details but they're saying you can start the snap enrollment process by calling 211 now and they will have more resources on food banks on other meal delivery programs that are operating at a smaller scale and there's going to be they're saying more comprehensive resources going out over the next couple weeks in the meal deliveries themselves but we don't have that yet because all the partner organizations are still putting them together so 211 is the best bet for now but there's more information in the article that's great information and our as you said our website is a great place to go to find out more resources thank you philip thank you okay you guys thanks for all your work this week thank you thanks Kevin. have a good week i found this is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. Thanks to our guests this week Nick Crastle, Marta Jusen, Philip Kiefer, and Lens editor Charles Maldonado. You can read all the week's other news along with opinions at our website, thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening. <laughs>